Looking forward to being back in our series in Second Chronicles 32. Uh, as I mentioned, had a great week of vacation Bible school, and thank you so much to all of you who prayed, who did something uh, to make to make all of that work this week. I got to be a sixth grade teacher while I was at VBS, and a couple of different times during the week, uh, we would do different activities, and they would not have enough people on the team, and so I got to join them. One of the activities there was a a goal. Uh, that we had to accomplish a couple of tasks under the direction of our leader. And so I was in a little group of four, and Riley McKibben, she was our leader. And so the three of us in the group, we were all blindfolded. And we had to, by focusing on the words that Riley spoke, accomplish a few different tasks. One of those was to feed her an Oreo. So she put an Oreo in our hand, and we had to take the Oreo, and she would say, back, forward, up, down, left, right, whatever. And we had to direct. At one point, she said, if you keep your fingers there, I'm going to bite them. So then I had to quick move my fingers a little bit, and I eventually did successfully navigate the Oreo to Riley's mouth where she got to take a bite of it. Now, as was the case all throughout the week of VBS, and any of you who are around at all know this is the case, it's not quiet, right? So I'm trying to focus in on Riley's voice, but it's just always noisy. When there's that many kids in one place and they're all excited, it's noisy. But I had to make this choice. Here's the voice that I want to hear in the midst of all these other voices and noises that are happening if I wanted to accomplish that task. Well, today we're going to be continuing our series called Restoration in the book of 2 Chronicles. We started in chapter 29. We're going to make our way through chapter 36 before the summer's over. Today we're going to be in the first part. We're just going to do verses 1 to 23 of 2 Chronicles chapter 32. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to that. We're going to read that here in just a moment. Just a little context, though, so you remember. I know a number of people have been gone in and out throughout the summer, so you know where we're at. We started in chapter 29, and in chapter 29, we saw God's people begin to live kind of a new kind of life under this new king. A young man by the name of Hezekiah, who had a bad dad, who was not a good king, did not lead the people to the Lord. Um, but Hezekiah's desire, his heart, was that God's people would return to him. And so he begins in chapter 29 by restoring their place of worship, the temple in which God's people would come to worship God. He built that place up. He kind of fixed it up because it was in, in shambles for the most part. So he fixes that up. And as a result, then in chapter 30, he invites he invites God's people to return to the Lord. And even specifically, he says, why don't you come and we're going to celebrate the Passover feast again. We have not done this for quite some time. We're going to make a sacrifice and we're going to have a feast. Now, it was supposed to last one week, but they showed up and worshiped God and they were having such a good time. They said, let's do one more. So they kept going. So they experienced two weeks worshiping the Lord with great joy and gladness. And then... They followed that up, that, that period of time, by continuing to worship God. They didn't want to just joyfully worship God and then stop, but their joyful worship led them to, and this is what we looked at last week, led them to destroy some of their idols, to begin giving generously, and to, be giving, to begin serving skillfully. Okay? So that's what we looked at last week. And then we ended at the end of chapter 31. Go ahead and, and look at that if you want. At the end of chapter 31, we got this summary of Hezekiah's life so far. It said this, And every work that he undertook in the service of the... Oh, wait, sorry. I want to go back. Verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. That was his summary. So far, in this, at this point, up to this point in Hezekiah's life, the summary is he did what was good and right and faithful in the eyes of the Lord his God. 
Stuff had changed. It wasn't good for God's people for a long period of time. Hezekiah comes and restoration starts taking place all over. God's people are now together. They've returned to him and many of them. A large group, a diverse group has come together and they are worshiping the Lord. Things are going really well. But what we're going to see today in chapter 32 is that things are going to turn a bit. And there's going to be, if, if I could call it this, a war of words that's going to take place. And God's people are going to have to decide which voice am I going to listen to. In the midst of all these voices that I hear, which voice am I going to listen to? Which voice am I going to believe? And so, let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 32. This is God's Word, and so one of the things that we typically do here to honor that is if you're able to, please stand as we read God's Word from Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 to 23. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So he set to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall, and he strengthened the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battle. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst, when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the other nations of those lands at all able to, able to deliver them out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? that your God should be able to, del to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servant said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. 
and they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the kings of Assyria. And so he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own servants, sons, struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts of the Lord to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. You can be seated. Good word from God today, and I, and I hope a word that will speak to our hearts, wherever we need to be spoken to. There is a sermon outline in your bulletin. I didn't have time to put together an application guide this week. I have a couple of suggestions down there, stuff to do on your own. But you'll notice that there's three points today. Three points. The first one, we're looking at verses 1 to 8, and I'm not going to read over each of these verses again. We'll spend most of our time again on this first one. But the first point is this. There are words that produce courage in the face of a battle. There are words that produce courage in the face of a battle. What we saw in verse 1 was this threat arising. I will read verse 1 again. Here's what it said. After these things, okay, and what's after these things? It's after all of the good and right and faithful things that Sennacherib was doing. Or sorry, not Sennacherib. He wasn't doing good and right and faithful things. That Hezekiah was doing, right? He was a good king and God's people were thriving. Things were going well. But after all of these things, then something happened. There was a threat. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. Just a little context here so you know probably how freaky this was if you are in Jerusalem at this time. It says he came and he, he took over all of these cities in the land of Judah and Jerusalem was kind of left standing. The year, by the way, context, year is 701 B.C. Okay, 701 B.C. is the year that this is taking place. Assyria was a very powerful nation at that time. In 722 B.C., so 21 years earlier, they had taken out the entire northern kingdom, okay? All that was left was little Judah. And so these people would probably have known, because it happened only 21 years before, of the power of the Assyrians. They had already come and taken over the northern kingdom, taken people into captivity, and now they were coming after them. It says in some of the accounts of, uh, well, I'll get to, yeah, it says in some of the accounts of, uh, of the Assyrians, they kind of wrote their own history book. They said that they had, it's somewhere else in my notes. I guess I was going to say it some other time, but yeah, there it is. Um, nope, that's not it. Somewhere, I'll get to it later. I'll tell you something later, okay, about what they said about themselves. But anyway, they're powerful, and these people knew it. It was a real threat that was coming upon God's people in Jerusalem at this time. Now, this, this account that I just read here in Second Chronicles, it's not the only time you can read the account of what happened in the Bible. There's actually two other spots. You could look at this up in Second Kings chapter 18 and 19 and in the book of Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. But the difference is the chronicler is writing this about 300 years after it happened. So these other accounts are already out there. So why is the chronicler writing this account again? One thing that's different about what he's doing is he's very much focusing on this war of words. The others will focus on the actual battle. He doesn't talk a lot about the battle itself. He talks a lot about kind of the trash talking that's going on prior to the battle. 
Okay, um, so we're going to look at that today. Verses 2 to 6, one thing that Hezekiah does, we're not going to read those verses, but if you looked at verses 2 to 6, you'd see that Hezekiah doesn't quickly like over-spiritualize everything and just say, hey, let's just pray about it. We'll see what happens, guys. He makes a battle plan. He makes a plan. He gathers some of his advisors together, and they are cutting off the water supply. They are repairing a broken wall, setting up a new wall, setting up towers, quickly manufacturing a bunch of weapons, right? He's getting ready for battle. He sees the threat, and he's not like, oh, that's okay. I'm sure we'll be fine. No, he sees the threat, and he's like, we got to do something. So he gets people together. And then in verses 7 to 8, he's going to say some words. These are the words that produce courage in the midst of battle. So King Hezekiah, the leader that they have trusted, comes up before all these people who are shaking in their boots because they see Assyria, and they've seen what they've already done, and they know that they're next. But King Hezekiah comes. And look at verses 7 and 8. He says this. Be strong and courageous. Here's what you should be. You should be strong and courageous. Here's what you shouldn't be. Do not be afraid or dismayed. And he admits, hey, the king of Assyria has got a lot of people with him. There's more with us, okay? But it says in the rest of verse 7, then I love verse 8, he says this, with him is an arm of flesh. Okay, saying, look at, look at, with him is an arm of flesh. And it, it's not, this, this arm of flesh is not intimidating. But the arm of flesh of the king of Assyria was an intimidating arm of flesh. He's got that, right? He looks strong and powerful. With him is an arm of flesh. But, but with us is the Lord our God. King Hezekiah is trying to figure out, how can I cause my people not to crumble in the face of this intense battle that's coming their way? How are they going to survive? With the battle that's coming at them, how are they going to survive? I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to tell them that their God is forever present with them. They might have a strong arm of flesh, but listen, with us is the Lord our God. It says the Lord our God, not some distant deity kind of God, but the Lord our our God, a personal God, and He is with us. And what's He going to do? What does it say in verse 8? To help us and to fight our battle. They know they don't have what it takes. They're still just a little people. They've got their city, and they, yeah, they built up the walls. They manufactured some weapons really quick, but they still are no match for the king of Assyria and his armies. This nation that they're coming up against has a long history of powerful destruction. How are they going to be able to stand up to that? Hezekiah says, the Lord is with us, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And what's the result of these words? They produce courage. They produce confidence. Look at the end of verse 8. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He didn't, he didn't give them this big display of, look at all these weapons we have. He didn't have this powerful patriotic display of, we are Jerusalem, we can do this. He didn't give them this positive self-help message and hand them a Joel Osteen book, right? He stood before them and he said, listen, here's what we got. This is about all we got. The Lord our God is with us to help us and to fight our battles. That's the hope that we have. That's what we have. And so people respond by having confidence. Just a little application for us because I want to spend some time here. I think first of all, as I look at this first section of the passage, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that we need to acknowledge that there's a battle going on. If you are a Christian, you need to know that there is a battle going on. There is a threat. There is an enemy. And he is powerfully and always at work. And we need to know that. 
sometimes the battles that we're fighting are easy to identify. Some of you right now in your life, you could say, well, I could list off some battles that I'm facing right now. But a lot of times the battles we're facing are much more subtle. That's one of the ways the enemy likes to work, right? That, that there's, there, there's, there's ways that we're being attacked that we don't even know about because it's so subtle. But the truth is we need to acknowledge that we're all in battle. And we need to prepare. I do like that. About verses 2 to 6, we went through them really quick. But Hezekiah didn't just say, I'm just going to pray about it. That's good enough. He took wise, quick, strategic action because there was was a battle facing him. So he decided, I need to take wise, quick, and strategic action. We need to do that. When a threat arises in our lives, I don't know what kind of threat maybe you're dealing with. Maybe the threat is a relationship that's falling apart. Maybe it's some medical issue. Maybe it's just a mental or emotional health issue. Maybe you're, you feel yourself sliding into depression or maybe you're already there. I don't know what your battle is right now, but we need to learn from what Hezekiah did and take wise, quick, and strategic action. We need to get some counseling lined up. We need to go see a doctor. We need to take some kind of treatment. We need to eat better, sleep better, exercise more, whatever it is. We need to make a battle plan. We don't want to just over-spiritualize everything and just say, well, I'm going to pray and I think that'll be fine. We need to take care of details as well. Respond with wise, quick, and strategic action, but we also need to hear true words. That's what I love. That's where the people got their confidence. Where did they get their confidence according to the end of verse 8? It says, and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. We need to hear words that are true about our God in the midst of our battles. We need to know this. We need to know we're not alone. He told them, hey, they're big, but there's more of us. Church, we need to know this. That you might look at your battles and, and it's overwhelming, whatever battle it is that you're facing. And I've heard so many times, just in the last couple of weeks, how do people that don't have a hope in Jesus and how do people that don't have a church family that loves them, how do they get through hard stuff? I don't even get it. I have seen so many times, just in the last week, I could just start listing off for you. This week has been incredible in just seeing the ways that the body of Christ cares for the body of Christ. I have seen so many expressions this week of people in the church just coming alongside other people and very practically being willing to help and to serve. Certainly you see it in VBS, but I saw it so many other ways. Just in one week, we're not in this battle alone, and we need to recognize that, that God has given us an army to work with, that whatever battle it is that you're facing in your life now, you're not facing it alone. You can try and be private and just kind of keep everything to yourself and kind of be like, I want to do this. The reality is that you probably can't. But God's given you a church family who is extremely loving and will find ways to practically love and serve you if you let us know that you need help. But that's not the only words they heard. They heard true words about God's character. Remember what Hezekiah told them? He said, God's a helper. God is with us. God is our God. We need to hear all those things. That we have a God who's not some distant, far-off deity, but we have a personal God who is, just because he's personal doesn't mean he's lost any of his power. He is both powerful and personal, and he can come, and he will help you, and he will fight your battle. It's his battle anyway. We need to know this about our God. The way the world gets through hard times, and I've heard worldly comfort trying to give to people when they're going through a hard time, it's often by trying to build up their self-esteem, by saying something like, you're strong, you can do this. It's not the message that Hezekiah gave to his people. He gave to them a message about God's strength, that God could do this. He can fight the battle. You probably can't, but he can. We don't need our self-esteem to be built in the midst of a battle. We need God to be esteemed in the midst of our battle. That's why I think a lot of people, when they're going through a really hard time, it's so good to just come to church, come to be here on a Sunday morning and just see God esteemed and lifted up. That's what we want to do in our singing and my preaching and everything that we do. 
Because that's what we need in the midst of a battle. We need God to be esteemed. We need to know truthful things about who we are. Hezekiah said, He is the Lord our God. If He's our God, that means we belong to Him. We are His. We need to know that. In the midst of a battle, you know how helpful that is to know whose you are? That I am His. He has made me His own. He is our God. We need to know the truth about who we are. I don't know what battle you're going through, but we don't get confident from looking at our circumstances or even any kind of temporary hope that we might have. And there are hopeful things when we look at things like medicine, like maybe counseling or whatever it is that you think this might be the thing. It's going to give you. It's a gift from God and we need to use it, but you can't put your ultimate hope there. Our ultimate hope, our confidence, our courage comes when we hear and believe true words about our God. Unfortunately, though, the enemy doesn't give in very quickly. Our battles don't all disappear when we want them to. These people gained courage in the face of battle, but the enemy kept at them. And so that's what we see next in this passage. Verses 9 to 19. Did you see all the trash talking that's going on? King Sennacherib, he's too cool to do it himself, so he sends some people. And he sends some people, and he wants them to communicate to everybody. He doesn't just go to the king. He wants everybody to hear this because he's going to start just cutting them down, cutting down their God. And so, there are also, in the face of battle, words that produce fear. This is real. And so look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and he was in the middle of besieging something else, okay? They know about him. They know what he's doing. He's already conquering one other town at this point. Here's where I, that thing I told you I was going to tell you, I'll tell you now. Okay, I found it in my notes. The Assyrians wrote in their own history books that they swept through this region. They ransacked 46 towns and villages and took 200,000 captives. That's what they had just done just recently up to this point. Okay? This threat is real. And the people are looking at that. Does that produce a lot of courage? No, it doesn't. That produces a lot of fear. They're in the middle of just this this sweeping, just we're going to take over. They're conquering this spot. And you're just like another ant that they're about to step on. That's what you feel like sometimes, right? That's what these people would have felt like. And then they start just uh, reminding people, like, hey, haven't you heard the stories of what we do? Verses 13 to 15, that's what they're all about. Like, hey, the gods of all these other nations, were they able to deliver them out of our hands? I don't think so. That one used to be theirs, now it's ours. That one used to be theirs, now it's ours. That one used to be yours, now it's ours. We're taking over. You can't do anything about it. We're big, you're little, your God is nothing to us. We can take you. That's the message that you hear over and over again in verses 13 to 15. And the actual words are, your God, will your God be able to deliver you? You really think your God can deliver you? I don't think so. That's the message that they hear over and over again in verses 13 to 15. And then they start questioning. So they're kind of pointing back to their history. Like, look what we've been doing. You're not going to stop us. And then they start questioning these people's faith. These people have faith in their God and in their leader as well. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting? He just asked them flat out, What's your hope in? What are you putting your faith in? Huh? You, you think that's going to stand? He's tr- trying to just plant seeds of doubt, right? Says something about your king took down the high places, all these gods that were protecting you. Now they're not protecting you anymore. He says there's only one God, and you can only worship him in one spot. You're going to trust that king, huh? You're going to trust that God, huh? They're just, they're just throwing these little barbs all over the place, trying to get them to not trust in their God. And then you get to verse 16. Verse 16 says this, And his servant said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. 
and he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord. These people don't give up. Like, we do not want you to trust in your God. They want these people to be trembling in fear. They'll just start waving the white flag and say, fine, have the city. It's yours. Just come. Fine, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this battle anymore. You want it? Come and have it. I'm done. That's what the enemy thinks is going to happen. That's what the enemy wants to happen. So they start belittling God. Verse 19 says it this way, And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. <laughs> they started talking about our God. They started talking about their God like he was just any other God. They didn't know. They didn't know that our God is not like any other God. Sure, they quickly ransacked all the towns and villages of all these other peoples. But they were standing up against our God. They don't know our God. They're trying to cause fear in the people. It says in verse 18 that they shouted with a loud voice in the language of Judah. They studied so they could speak to these people in their own language. They knew how to push their buttons. They learned their language so that they could intimidate them. They didn't want it to have to be translated. They learned their own language so they could yell at them, those who were standing on the wall, to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. That's what it says. You just want to scare them. A lot of words that produce fear in the midst of battle. Just quickly about us, some application for us. Again, I don't know what battle you're facing. I'm sure you're facing some battle. Are there words that are going to produce fear in the midst of a battle? You bet there are. Are you maybe even today hearing, maybe they're, maybe they're coming from the outside, maybe they're coming from your own mind. A lot of times our words that produce fear come from our own mind. Stuff just gets kind of worked up and we're like, whew, and stuff that gets way bigger than it even needs to be. You know what I'm saying? That, that we hear words that produce fear. Um, one, of the, one of the downsides of all the access to information that we have now through the internet, through TV, whatever, is we can always live in fear. If you want to be scared of something, just turn on the news, read something on the internet. You can be scared of something. If it's medical news, like, you used to just trust your doctor, like, whatever your doctor said. Now you can, like, Google stuff and research it and find out how bad it really could be, right? So, like, this week, example, this week, um, Annika had had this, this issue on her fingers, and um, we, we took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, I'm pretty sure it's a staph infection. Um, and, uh, and it came back, and it was a staph infection. Eventually, we found out. But, of course, like, okay, staph infection. I've heard of that. I've heard that's pretty bad. So, Google staph infection. Go to the Mayo Clinic website, okay? Here's the second paragraph that I read about staph infection. But staph infections can turn deadly if the bacteria invade deeper into your body, entering your bloodstream, joints, bones, lungs, or heart. A growing number of otherwise healthy people are developing life-threatening staph infections. Well, that's encouraging, right? Like, why did I even look that up? I mean, he just said we got to go through this little, you know, regimen thing, and, and it'll be fine. And then I go looking this up. Those are words that produce fear, right? Now, we talked with Annika about it. That's not, that's not, a, hers wasn't that significant. Like, it hadn't gone deep into her body. It was just on the outside, and so we're very grateful for that. But you read stuff like that, and your mind can so quickly race. The doctor says a word, you look up the word, like, oh, my, right? And words are like just, there's so many words that we can hear that produce so much fear. We might even have the words going on in your own mind. Remember, the, 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 the threats from the enemy were, hey, you really think your God's powerful enough to deliver you? Your God doesn't have what it takes. You can be looking at your own life and looking at how much of a mess you are, maybe. How much of a mess you've made of your own life. How much of a mess your life is and say, you know what? I'm going to maybe believe the words of the enemy that's telling me, you think your God can really do something about that? 
you know how messed up and dirty and sinful you are? You really think your God's going to be able to do something about that? That's the kind of words that the enemy speaks to us. And some of you maybe today are believing the words of the enemy. It's like, you really think that you're fixable? You're such a mess. People don't even know how much of a mess you are. You really think there's hope for you? That's the words of the enemy speaking, not the words of truth. Then we get to the end. Get to the end and um, verses 20 to 23. Now, I did say that that one thing that Hezekiah didn't do was over-spiritualize and just pray. He also prepared for a battle, but he also did pray. Look at verse 20. Then Hezekiah, the king, and Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. So their reaction, after hearing these fear-producing words of the enemy and all their people maybe starting to believe them, their reaction is, because of this, they prayed and cried to heaven. That's a great response in the midst of the battle. We need to spend time alone and together in prayer. Notice they didn't speak directly to the enemy. They didn't go out and trash talk back. Some people have kind of this practice of like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Satan stuff while I'm praying. I'm not really into telling Satan stuff. I don't really want to mess with the enemy in that way. I really want to just talk to God. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what these guys are doing. Isaiah, the prophet, gets together with Hezekiah, the king. They're going to spend some time just praying together, talking to God. And the result, look at the result, verses 21 to 23. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. You see that? See what happened? That, that the king who came in talking trash, thinking this is going to be just another one of those cities that I'm going to do, making fun of their God. These people pray, and their God sends an angel to cut them off. And he ends up turning around with shame on his face, going back to his homeland. Well, there was one I couldn't get. I talked trash like I could do this, but there was one I just couldn't get. And then his sons even strike him down and kill him when he comes home. Verse 22, though, says this. Look at, look at the truth about God in verse 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah. The Lord saved. This guy was saying, your God can't deliver you. Well, we know that's not true. Verse 22 says, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all of his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. Listen, we have a God who still does that. We have a God who can still save and provide. He does both all of the time. Verse 23 then, the last verse we're looking at today says this, And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. I don't know if Hezekiah or God's being exalted. I know for sure what we want in our lives is that God is being exalted. When God is the one who comes and fights the battle, God sent an angel to cut them off. God is the one who came to fight the battle. So who gets the glory when the battle's won? God gets the glory when the battle's won. Just very quickly, some application for us. We need to, church, listen, Christians, we need to, in the midst of all the voices that are shouting out at us, we need to focus in on and to listen to and believe the words of truth about our God. It's so tempting to listen to the fear-producing words that we produce within our own minds or that we hear from all sorts of other sources from the enemy himself, but we need to make a choice to trust in the true words about our God, which we have given to us in his word. The other thing we know about this, in this battle here in Second Chronicles 32, who wins? God and his people. Hey, in the battle that we're engaged in right now, we know the ultimate end of the battle, don't we? Who wins? God and his people. All who are in Christ win, and the enemy gets put to shame. 
That's how. Remember how that's how King Sennacherib walked away. He walked away because he thought he had it, and then he didn't. So he walks away with shame. Listen, you know what happened? You know what Jesus did? You know what Jesus did? Jesus came and he died on the cross. And you know what? You know what the enemy thought? I win, right? As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, people are spitting at him. People had already whipped him. They've got this mocking sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And they say to him, hey, if you're really the king, why don't you come down? You save all these other people. Why don't you save yourself, right? They're just mocking our God. Just like they were here in this passage. And Jesus dies. He breathes his last breath, says it is finished. He dies and the enemy thinks that he won. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. It says in Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. God wins, right? God wins. Whatever battle it is, God wins. In this, in this ultimate battle against sin and death, when the enemy finally thought, I finally got him. Jesus comes out of the grave and it says in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in him and he put them to shame. Exact same thing that we see happening in 2 Chronicles 32. You want to win? You want to be victorious in whatever battle it is that you're fighting? Get on the right team. If you have not turned to Jesus, if you are still just kind of living in your sin, doing life your way, you need to today recognize that there is going to be a winner and a loser in this battle. And only those who are in Christ win. Only those who have turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those are the only ones who win. We still have a God who saves. We still have a God who provides. And because He does all this, He is the God who gets the glory for the win in the end. 